Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea and with me as always is... It's Brian in Buffalo, New York, USA. How are you, Lauren? I'm good, thanks. Just busy with work. Yeah, you are uh, busy, busy, busy. I never know when you're working anymore. Sometimes your days, sometimes your nights. And with the time zone difference here, you know I always get messed up. Yes. Yes, you do get messed up a lot. But we are in September already. Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, well, to be fair, a lot of this year has just been blanked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have four months left in, uh, I think the official year of this, the Chinese year, is year of the shit. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's the year of diarrhea. <laughs> it could be. I think I think this is just I think it's just too bad to be shit. I think 2020 is eventually going to be an urban dictionary phrase. Yes. Have you seen the meme about the the uh, about the unlucky numbers like 13 and 666 and 2020s like hold my beer. <laughs> not but that is so perfect. Like uh, oh. it but uh you know oh. it's uh it's labor day here in america uh september uh, 7th so uh i have the day that off means, that means that it's officially the end of summer yeah did you know the first day of summer is my brother's birthday no oh. yeah that's interesting and i'm an ides of march baby <laughs> which which um which kind of uh, explains a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of glad we're into September already because the year is coming to an end. The problem is I don't think just when it turns to 2021, things are necessarily going to be better. I think uh, it's still going to be kind of shitty. Well, the thing is, is, is it really depends on what happens in November now. Uh, in America, yeah. Well, actually, all yeah. over the world, well, you're right. To be fair, you know, America is such a large country and it's such a powerhouse of a country as well that it really does depend what happens in November for the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, Especially with with us going into Brexit um, at the at the beginning of next year. it, it depends, you know, who are we going to be talking to in the White House? Are we going to be talking to somebody with a bit of rationality or somebody who wants to own everything that we have, like the NHS? And Yeah, I I can't answer that question. Um, I don't know. Because I, it's so funny. I people think... in this country are like, oh, there's no way Joe Biden can lose. And other people are like, there's no way Donald Trump can lose. I'm like, anything can happen, people. Anything. I, I just think. I'm praying for Cthulhu. Cthulhu. I don't think Cthulhu could technically, um, I don't think he's American technically, so I don't think he can run. I, no, not for president. I'm just praying for Cthulhu. I want to see Cthulhu's birth certificate. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just think this year needs to end with Cthulhu. Or Godzilla. We haven't talked about Godzilla in a while. Oh, oh Cthulhu versus Godzilla. Godzilla wins hands down i don't know this year's been pretty messed up who knows who could win you know who would kick the shit out of cthulhu mothra yeah greatest I feminist monster ever i think 
I think, you know, the way that this year is going, you know, we're going to have a, cross, a press conference for Bigfoot or something. Um, we you know, you finally from the hills just, and then... You know, in just two weeks, we're going to have a press conference with Bigfoot because we have the editors of the Weekly World News coming on our show, and I think we'll do a little campaign rally for Bat Boy and Bigfoot. Yeah, but no, no, I just really think that <laughs> Bigfoot, will come, Bigfoot will come down from the hills and be like, hello, people of Earth, you know, I'm Bigfoot, and I think you all start. World News, he could be vice president. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 2020. You know, I'm not going to put anything past 2020. Speaking Uh, of American politics, are your nephews still enthralled with the Donald? Yes. (laughs) But it's it's more, I think, because they they're on. uh, They watch TikTok. It's more of the sound bites that end up on there. Like coronavirus is cancelled. That's the one because Donald Trump says coronavirus is cancelled. And, uh, you know, Corona is just, do you know how many deaths we've had in America? We're we're approaching 200,000 deaths from this. Way to bring the show down, Lauren. (laughs) Um, Well, also as well, they don't say China because of Donald Trump. They say Chinese. And you try and correct them and say, no, no, the country is China. The people are Chinese. The food is Chinese, but the country oh, is China. The food no, is no, delicious. No. Yes, but they're like, no, they're like, um, what? What time is it in Chinese? And I'm like, I don't speak Chinese. They're like, no, no, Chinese, the country. And I'm like, it's China. Lauren. Yeah. What's your favorite Chinese food? Um, I can never remember whether dim sum is Chinese or Japanese. Dim sum is Chinese. Oh, they're delicious. Yes, there is. By the Tower of London, down by the side of the Tower of London, on St. Catherine's Docks, there is the best dim sum restaurant. But take a friend, because it's also very tasty, and you eat a lot of it, which is fine, but then you get a bill, like, for a lot. So if you take a friend, at least the the bill is divided in two. (laughs) Well, my question is, what if you don't have any friends? Well, then enjoy the dim sum. Nobody wants to be seen in public with me, Lauren. That's not true. That's not true. Did you see there is going to be a small mini transatlantic history ramblings get together? Is that? In October. Am I invited? No, I'm not invited, am I? You can't come here now because there's the travel ban, but a certain listener in Ohio is going to be coming to Buffalo for Duff's Wings. Michelle. Yes. Oh, you love Michelle. She's fantastic. I want a picture. Oh, we're going to get a picture of us at Duff's to send you. <laughs> You're going to have such a great time with Michelle. Yeah, um, she already is like, okay, where are all the haunted things in Buffalo? And I'm like, I don't believe anything's haunted. But uh, if you want the places that they say are haunted, here you go. Yeah, she, she's going to love it as well. Well, Buffalo's a great city. Um, it really is. I'm hoping that... Maybe there's a little bit less um, corona spread by October. Maybe in the next two months we'll be okay. And uh, we can actually, you know, get together and, and, you know, have some fun times. We'll have to get a key ring made for her. Yes, but, oh, we'll get her a Duff's key ring maybe. I want a Duff's key ring now. (laughs) You want a Duff's shirt? You want a Duff's key ring? (laughs) 
I like my bag, by the way. It's a, it's a superb bag. Do you know, speaking of T-shirts and bags and, and key rings and merch, we have a merch store. We do. I hope you'll be wearing some sort of T-shirt at this meeting. No, I'll be naked. Of course I'm going to be wearing some sort of T-shirt. No, some sort of our T-shirt. <laughs> But in the description on our show, we have a link to our merch store where you can get Transatlantic History Ramblings t-shirts, coffee mugs, bags, hoodies, sweatshirts, uh, just, uh, just about anything you want. They even have a Transatlantic History Ramblings onesie for your newborn. I thought you were going to say for you. I thought it was an adult onesie. Can you they... picture me in a onesie? Yes. <laughs> They actually, like, are they actually offend me. Adult onesies offend me. What if it was a transatlantic history ramblings adult onesie? <laughs> then I would laugh. But we, we, that's one thing we don't have is adult onesies, but we do. But please never, never onesies, never adult, like baby onesies, that's fine, that's cute, that's precious. But adult onesies, there's something quite sinister about them. You know, the other great thing about our merch store is that they range in sizes. You can get, like, extra small all the way through, you know, giant size like I wear because, you know, I'm a monster. But, and they're cheap. It is the best prices you will find on on these shirts. I mean, was it $15 for a t-shirt? Mm. You can't beat it. No. What about... Are you creating any hashtag Planet Pluto t-shirts? Um, not just yet. We're uh, trying to, you know, just test things out with the store, see how it works, make sure the orders get filled right. You know, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. What else goes on, Lauren? Um, well, well, I am now officially a week away from registering as a graduate student. Oh, look at that. I know. Oh, back to school, like that Rodney Dangerfield movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of scared and excited all at the same time. Now, are you doing online classes, or are you actually going to be attending? It's a mixture. But what I... But what I'm thinking of doing is going to campus and um, listening to the lecture, even if they're online, going to the library um, and listening to the lectures, because then that means I can get first dibs on the reading. <laughs> <laughs> so I can beat the others, you know, the other ones are curled up in their beds, watching from their bed. I can go in and raid the library. So, are you really nervous about getting back into the swing of being a student, or just um, everything? Nervous about get, nervous about being back in the swing of a student. Um, also, as well, because they're going to be a lot younger than me, and people who are a lot younger than me tend to annoy me a lot. <laughs> okay. Well, it's like they have. It's like. It's like they're, they're so entitled and they haven't matured and it's like... And they all think gone. they're right. Yeah, and it's like, no, oh, bless you. Like, no, someone's going to come along and like, no, 
punch you and tell you you're wrong and life's going to kick you and you know, and half still... of them don't even know Pluto's a planet. And and most of them are still optimistic and not realistic about their lives. You know, it's just... Yeah, fuck them. Okay, let's just say it right now. <laughs> and also that, you know, I'm concerned they might be judgy, but it's kind of like, I'm just going to be like, nah. No, you know, my problem with it is that... We're history nerds. We do a history show. We're historians. And a lot of the youth just have no sense of history. Well, they better in this class because this is what it's all about. Do you know, speaking of history, mm-hmm. our show, and we're not the biggest show, but we do appreciate everybody out there who listens and, and spreading the word and helping get the show uh, you know, heard and listened to. If the audience is bigger than one, though, we're doing a good job. Absolutely. Uh, you know, two, me and you, we listen, and that's it. That's all we need. No. <laughs> but you And know, your mum listens, so that's three. That's, that's three. three guaranteed listeners. Um, but we have, you know, we have some great guests. And I'm, we're talking guests that don't go on other shows necessarily. Um, just for example, Professor Jack Weatherford, when he came on, he's retired. He stopped doing interviews. He stopped doing documentaries and television and radio appearances. But he liked our show and agreed to come on. And the great Allison Weir is coming back on soon. Yeah. Um, we're discussing her new novel, aren't we? We, we will be discussing her new novel and just catching up as, uh, as old friends do. Because yeah. You know, here's another person who has to turn down more interviews than she does. <laughs> what? It's because you it's because you joked with her. It's it's because you joked a little bit with her. No, I, I think it's because we have a different I, approach than most people and Well no no, I, I mean I mean that in a good way. It's because you you weren't you, you sort of I think, you know, a lot of podcasts sort of it's very stiff and formal, and when their guests come on, it's like they're on, it's like they're on a, a news show, and it's just not um, a conversation about history. It's uh, very stiff and formal, as if you're just going through the motions of, you know. Yeah, and we have fun. We yeah. take it seriously. We take the topic so, seriously, but we also have fun. We're we're people with personalities which is something also lacking a lot of youth. They're, they're so set in their ways, they don't seem to have a, a sense of personality amongst them. And everything, like, like I know I was joking earlier about onesies offending me. They don't really offend me. It's no. just I think that they're crazy. But they're so easily offended, and they take everything so seriously. Like, if their friend does something, and you know, or their friend isn't able to go out with them, and I'm like, well... You know, they might have had something come up. It's not all about you. They probably did want to spend time with you, but you know, something came up, and it's all right. And well, people are people yeah. want to be offended today. I'll give you an example. I get emails telling people that I'm a horrible misogynist bastard. That I silence you during interviews. Yeah. <laughs> you silence me during. Yeah, that I'm this misogynist part of the, the, the patriarchy that's trying to keep Lauren down. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 
Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm gone. You're not gonna. <laughs> no, it's just you know I have to be honest. My bright era of history is very much um, Tudor. That's the that's the main bulk of my reading. So things like Victorian, Edwardian, American history, they're still new to me. And I'm quite nervous about getting my opinion out there because it's still, it's not as informed or as developed as my opinion on, say, Tudor history. So when when we were talking to people like Alison and Philippa, you will hear me talk more because I feel more comfortable. But the other bits... I just like listening to Brian talk about these things. You know, I am still learning about more modern history, and I I, I don't mind saying that. No, and, and please, yeah, tell them. Tell the SJWs out there who think that I am this horrible <laughs> person. Oh, my. What, so, what, uh, what, what, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a victim of the patriarchy now, am I? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I said, do you realize the show's called called with Lauren and Brian? <laughs> your name is first. I did say your name could go first because that would have been alphabetically pleasing. But you were like, no. It sounds better with your name first. Like, I, I, I don't mind whose name goes first. I, I, it really doesn't matter. Who's on first? Me. What's on second? You. You don't know the Abbott and Costello bit, do you? No. I it just it it I I just I think that's hilarious that that the most possibly the possi- possibly the most you know clued on guy who who about feminist issues is being accused of being a misogynist because people want to be offended and that's the thing and the people who are writing those are obviously young people you're not getting that from older people. It's these young people look, look, I'm more woke than you, and I'm going to prove it by complaining about you. Well, go fucking head. Complain about me. Um, so, how, so that must be a recent thing, because I, I've not heard you say that before. I, I, don't, I tend not to let you know, because, look, I know that you are one of the true strong voices in feminism. And I knew you would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> So, I'm just like, yeah, let it go. But, I mean, you brought it up that people like the, this younger generation wants to be yeah. offended. <laughs> I can, you know what? I'm going to offend you now, Lauren. Ready? Yeah, go ahead. Where do pirates like to eat? Are you saying this joke while wearing a onesie? Because that would really revolt me. <laughs> Come on, Lauren. Where do pirates like to eat? I don't know. Where did Paris like to eat? Arby's. <laughs> See, <laughs> bad jokes are offensive. And and part of the patriarchy's um, master plan to bring down women. Yeah. Here's another <laughs> one. My mother told me this one. Ready? Yeah. What do you call a group of fake musicians? I don't know what you call a group of fake musicians. A symphony. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lauren, you're driving me nuts. Oh, that's another old pirate joke. Did you ever hear that one? Yes. With the, the 
boat wheel on the belt buckle? Yeah. What's that doing? It's driving me nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Should we move on today in history? I think we should move on. It's your turn, so come on, give us a nice, booming day in history. (laughs) Today in history. Oh, that was a good one. Go ahead, September 7th, Labor Day in America. Give us your day in history, Lauren. So mine is from 1191. So we're back to the Crusades, and this is the Third Crusade, Battle of Asuf. Richard I of England defeats Saladin at Asuf. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Do you remember that one where we did two and poor... Poor old Jerusalem was getting like bombarded in both of them. <laughs> I, I Poor gotta, old Jerusalem. I gotta interrupt our day in history for a second. Because Cleopatra's oh, like sitting right next to me and she's grooming herself. And she's got her back paw with the toes spread completely open, like cleaning in between her toes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I had the ability to do that, would I would would I do that? You would do that. Uh, it looks like she's enjoying it. Oh, she's pissed now. She just kind of looked at me, and now she hunkered down. You shamed her. I did. Don't talk about my feet on the air, Daddy. See, this is why people say you're a misogynist, Brian. Because <laughs> I have a girl cat. <laughs> no, because you're shaming your girl cat. She's Live also chubby. Air. She's a chubby cat, so I'm fat shaming her too on the air. Yeah, you're such a misogynist. <laughs> That's going to be the new thing now. That's going to be not that. This is why people say you're um, obnoxious, Brian. This is why people say you're a misogynist, Brian. <laughs> well, I'm going to go on to my today in history then. <laughs> okay. All right, day in history, September seventh, eighteen thirteen. Troy Post creates Uncle Sam, representing America for the first time, the cartoon of Uncle Sam, our symbol. Mm -hmm. Once again, proving uh, what a misogynist I am, because I didn't mention Aunt Sam. You terrible person. That's right. Uncle Sam, only, I'll only talk about mascots with male genitalia. Did you just assume his gender? Oh, I did assume his gender. (laughs) And uh, for those of you out there who are enjoying our little riff on Brian being the misogynist, (laughs) that leads us in perfectly to our guest today. Yes. Because we are going to be talking about one of the great female heroes in American history. Yeah. Um, yeah. with one of the great uh, female educators in America today, Miss Brooke Kroger. Mm-hmm. We are going to be discussing the life and legacy of Nellie Bly, which, Lauren, I know even in the UK you guys are fascinated with Nellie Bly. We are indeed. She's amazing. She's an amazing woman. Well, she was. She's kind of dead. Well, that doesn't that doesn't mean she isn't amazing. I mean, her legacy is amazing. Um, no, Nellie Bly is such a fascinating and charismatic figure in American history and the history of journalism 
and the history of investigative journalism and writing. And, you know, getting Brooke to come on is just unbelievably, um, it's an honor because she's another one who's so busy. It's, you know, tough to nail these people down to come on, but she agreed to come on to discuss her, uh, her book on Nellie Bly. So you know what time it is. Guest o'clock. That's right. Time to fire up. It's the magic interview box. And here we go. All right, Laura and I got her. I got Professor Brooke what? Kroger on the line, who is quite possibly almost as fascinating as the one we're going to be talking about. Um, her, her career has just been incredible, and now she's at NYU, correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, I mean... Sort of doing my last laps at NYU. Last laps? What do you mean? Last laps, because, you know, it's time to move on. Well, yeah, I mean, it's probably not as exciting as some of your other jobs. Oh, no, it's very exciting. I've just reached a stage in life where it's time to hang up those toe shoes and put on some other ones. Wow. That's just, that to to me is incredible. It's like, NYU is the destination for most people. I know, but I'm older than you think. And you're like, been there, done that. (laughs) No, no, it's not that. It's 22 years. Make room for others, you know, it's a good thing. And, Lauren, you'll be pleased to note, not only did she write probably the best book I've read on Nellie Bly, which is who, obviously, we're talking about tonight, but her newest book is something right up your alley. I know, I already have it. It's called (laughs) Suffragette. Oh, yes. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, there were, you know, there were British uh, suffragettes also. In fact, they yes, preceded they the they preceded the American ones. Similar notion, similar idea, similar strategic Rich, idea. Richard Pankhurst is probably the most important and foremost. Be he really had his his hand in um, the foundation of of fairer divorce laws for women in Britain. Who is that? I'm sorry. Who is that? Uh, Dr. Richard Pankhurst, uh, husband of oh, Emmeline Oh, of course. Pankhurst. Yeah, Emmeline came to the States many times. Many, many. <laughs> and Christabel um, went to live there. Uh-huh. And I think when Emmeline came to Boston, to Cambridge, Harvard wouldn't let her speak on campus. And so she ended up at one of the halls, and everyone threw a wild fit about that. Fantastic. I wouldn't have thrown a fit. No, that you know, that they wouldn't let her be on campus, that was pretty terrible. That was that wasn't nice. And in retrospect they're regretting that because she's more famous than they are now. Exactly. Exactly. Almost like our topic tonight, which the title of your book really says it all. Nellie Bly daredevil reporter feminist you can thank steve wasserman for that it was his title it's a great title and it it is shows all the hats she wore no pun intended since she's wearing that really big hat on the cover true but um how did you initially become so fascinated with nelly because i mean i read about her in a book when i was about 12 
it was just a little snippet about her. And I went down a rabbit hole studying her for a long time. What was your introduction? Uh, Similar. Uh, There used to be a bookmobile, you know, sort of a van that came with books every week to our corner. And they had a big biography section, and I made my way through that. George Washington Carver, Booker T. Washington, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a book about Nellie Bly. And I was probably 10. And it just said, it just spoke to me because I realized that I didn't have to be a teacher. I didn't have to be a nurse, which seemed to be the only options around 19, whatever it was, 59, let's say, 58, 59. And, um, and I got very excited about that idea. And my father, that wasn't the only thing, but my father was a, um, would have liked to have been a journalist, but he became a businessman and I think always at some level regretted that. So that these were, you know, a confluence of two streams that kind of came together. And she became my patron saint a little bit. You know, she and Brenda Starr, who was a comic strip character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's kind of how that happened. And then it was just, you know, a, a thing in the background. And then I had a daughter and she got to be about 10 and needed to do a school project, a history project. And I said about a famous woman, she went to a girl's school. And, um, so I said, well, what about Nellie Bly? And I said, let's go find these books. And of course this was pre-internet. So you had to go through the, um, what was it called? The antique book finder or some name like that, the antiquarian. I can't remember the name. And you would place an ad. And then what happened was not one but two books came back. And it was very clear that they were heavily, heavily fictionalized because they didn't agree on any of the basic facts, including the spelling of her name. So... That was interesting. And, you know, here is my 10-year-old saying, oh, mom, you should write a real book. And I thought, well, that's really not a bad idea. And so I uh, proposed it to an agent. And she said what I said, how come no one's ever done this? Because no one really had. Uh, Such a fascinating character, it seemed like she deserved that. And, of course, the reason no one had done it, I think, except in a fictionalized way, was because there was no material. <laughs> there was there was no archive. There was no nothing. There were at that point. This would have been 1990. Six known letters. Six. And by the time I was done, I had over 250. Wow. Um, so just found God knows where. And then it turned out she was incredibly litigious. So there was a massive legal record, which was incredibly helpful because it was a lot of suing her relatives, so you got lots of passion. There was the testimony from her mother's divorce from her second husband that was, you know, very moving from a 14-year-old, which was Nellie at the time. And so I had tons of that kind of material. And then when she became a journalist at the age of, say, 20, 21, yeah, 21, I would say, because it would be 1885, well, there was her written record with her name in the headline of virtually every story she ever wrote. So I went through microfilm, not only of the papers she worked for, but all the papers surrounding the papers she worked for because she was such a personality, page by page by page by page by page, and dug it all out. 
And that's one of the reasons, you know, the book is almost like an archive itself. I went to really great lengths to say, this was so hard to do. I'm going to make it easy for whoever comes after me. <laughs> and and I've noticed that the many, many people who write about Nellie, and now there are, you know, this is already over 25 years, right? So there are many, many, many who do novels and one-woman shows and full-scale musical productions. And she continues to fascinate in the way she fascinated me. And I get a lot of, you know, thank yous. So I feel like, okay, that's that was good. Um, and I and I feel good about that. And then you also have, in the United States, we have a middle school, I think early high school, national program called the National History Day Contest. And lots of teachers assign this in middle school, I think. And she is a perennial. I mean, whatever theme they come up with, I have anywhere from, say, 10 to 40, usually girls, who are seeking me for an interview because they have to have one live person as part of the construct of the competition. So I, <laughs> I put up a big page on my website saying, read all this before you call me. <laughs> I'm not going to answer the question about where I got the idea for the book because it's page three. So I do a little of that. Um, so, so that's how I got to Nellie, and that's how Nellie got rekindled through my own daughter. And what she did was create a board game, because as you know, when Nellie went around the world, there were numerous editions of a board game made of her trip of 72 days. So say, she, she made her Phineas. own one. Exactly. But she did it of her whole life, you know, like, goes to work at the world, advance five spaces, you know, that kind of thing. It was very cute. Very ten, but very good. I, what amazes me is it is, it is like an archive, your book. How, how gray did your editor's hair go? <laughs> Especially when you were fighting back and forth about, no, that's not getting cut. Oh, you mean like the 80 page bankruptcy section? I always tell people <laughs> just to skip it, skip it if they want. But I was so excited to find that material and see how her company failed. And probably she had more to do with it than she would have liked people to think. And how she, you know, basically flees the country to avoid prosecution uh, and ends up where in Vienna as World War I is breaking out. So, of course, she reengages as a correspondent. I mean, she's such a character. So, I, you know, all that part of her life after the trip around the world, I have to step back and say this. The entire thing that people are excited about Nellie Bly about is a two and a half year period. That's all. Two and a half years where she is doing stunt after stunt after stunt, from checking into an insane asylum as a madwoman to zipping around the world in 72 days by herself. That entire period, including all the things that happen in between, is two and a half years. And that is all anyone seems to care about. And her life is so much more interesting than that. I mean, of course, that's wonderful and gee whiz, good for her. But after that, she comes back to the world in a few incarnations. She has this marriage to a man who's 40 years older, and that's a really interesting saga. She thinks he's very, very wealthy, not so much, and that becomes interesting, though she's, you know, she stays with him until he, he dies and, um, and you know, fulfills her duty. 
And then she takes over his industrial companies, about which she knows little, but always with this same agenda of doing good, you know, of, of filling a social need. Um, so even for her workers, she establishes recreation facilities, the turkeys at Christmas. Um, I even think she had a child care portion. I mean, she just did everything in that kind of way, whatever she was doing. And then when she zips off to Austria, she stays there through the entire war because, of course, she becomes an alien, right? The Austrians are on the other side. and But becomes very, very close to the nobility. She's hobnobbing with everybody. And, um, and then on her way back to America, she stops at Versailles and tries to see Wilson because she wants to get him on board about the Bolsheviks, that they are going to be this new menace. And, of course, everyone thinks she's a hatty old lady by that point. She isn't that old. She's about 50. Gets back to the States, and Arthur Brisbane, her great friend and champion, her editor at The World, her friend, and then he became the managing editor. And then he moves to the journal to work for William Randolph Hearst. Um, he... Um, he brings her on as a columnist, you know, still really admiring the way she did everything. And when she dies of pneumonia and a broken heart because her family so betrayed her, another great story, um, he writes in his tribute, his memorial tribute, the best reporter in, in America. Not the best girl reporter, not the best woman reporter, the best reporter. It was pretty great. So... How can you not like Nellie Bly? No, and, and you know, the best reporter. This is 1922. Women didn't even have rights yet. Uh, actually, they did. Well, not. Because they got, yeah, they got two them. Two years. They got them in 1918. Yeah. Well, they got the vote anyway. Yeah, and, yeah um, two years. So but, it was just. Yeah, so that's my new work. I have to tell you, women by 1922 had been in the profession since 1840. And had done an enormous amount that is mostly forgotten or it's, it exists in scholarly literature that, you know, people don't tend to see quite as much, uh, unfortunately, because all these stories are fantastic from the 1840s, the 1850s, the 1860s, the 1870s. So when Nellie comes along, women have been very active in journalism, not in huge numbers, but active since... 1840, starting with Margaret Fuller, I would say. So, I mean, really, women go back to colonial days, but in, in terms of the era of the modern newspaper, we counted from about 1840. So, women were there from the start, and they really didn't start getting discriminated against for a while, which is interesting, too. <laughs> like, in the very beginning, there was pay equity, doesn't last long, but there was for a while. Um, it's anyway. That's what I'm working on now, so that uh, engages me quite a bit. Yeah, I'll go off topic a little bit because you just you just made me go. Uh, why? Why is it so well, overlooked? Uh, you know, I mean, I think you know um, African Americans would make the same claim. People have been written out of history for various reasons: bias, conscious and unconscious. Um, uh, you know, dominant cultures that think they're the only people on earth. I mean, that this is not a new story. It's an old one. I, w I was just looking at one of the big encyclopedias that was made in um, 18, 
what is it? I think around 1892, or, oh no, 1895, let's say, 96. It comes out in 1896. 1,500 women in all professions, American women who are, you know, of exceptional uh, ability and, and uh, work. And there's not one black woman in the entire book. Wow. And this is, you know, Ida B. Wells was already a major figure. I mean, there's no reason for that to be true except some either conscious or unconscious decision by the arbiters. It's just been like that for a really long time for lots of people, including women who are, let's say, half the population. Mm, yeah, a little more in America, at least a little more. Yeah, exactly. Now, she, yeah, Nellie is, she, she, you, you couldn't bury her in history. I mean, she did too much. She was too big, too grandiose, I should say. Right, Brian, she was buried. When I did this book, all there were were these two books from the 1950s, both, you know, juvenile books. Probably each of the authors were looking at a big volume of pages of the New York world and built their stories around that. There's nothing about this really difficult early childhood and the father's death and all that. There's nothing about that except that she lives in this house and, you know, there's doesn't really mention that there are 15 children in all and what happens, you know, with the estate when the father dies. And there's like nothing was known, nothing. So it was really in when it, the book came out in 1994, it was a resurrection. It really was. I, you know, it's been exciting since then how many people have taken up the topic in, in a serious way as well. But usually they're doing just a piece. You know, they're doing the trip around the world or they're doing the madhouse or something like that. Or uh, the competition for the trip around the world, which is also a wonderful book. Um, so there, there are a lot of successors who've done great work. But I think I, I made it easier. <laughs> Much easier. Uh, and I'll admit... The, the thing that really got me so fascinated about her was 10 Days in a Madhouse. Of course. And that's what everyone thinks. And if anyone yeah. decides to think about this for a movie, that's what they want to think about. Well, it just, I, find, yeah. I find it so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's more than that. Oh, yeah, that, that I was just going to say. And that's what you know drew me to her and made me start reading about her. But then when I'm learning, wait, she was an inventor? She was a daredevil. She was this, you know, great well, she charitable. Invented, she she invented the steel barrel. Yeah, and has a number of copyrights, patents in her name. Yeah, she's just she's absolutely incredible. Well, as she used to say, energy rightly applied can accomplish anything. That was her motto. That and Mary Rich Old Guys. Well, yeah, I, ostensibly rich old guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lauren, you sounded like you were about to jump in. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, wasn't um, the American Horror Show Asylum based on Nellie's um, experiences in the Madhouse? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it's likely. Because I know when a friend gave it to me for a birthday, she said, oh, this is what American Horror Show... The Asylum series is based on. So uh, I think I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it, but I'm sure that could be true. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just one of those iconic stories. If you go into a database I've created, 
It's called undercoverreporting.org. Undercover reporting is one word, undercoverreporting.org. I took all the research from a subsequent book I did that was about undercover reporting. Um, you see my interests stay together. Um, and uh, and all Nellie's work is her, the actual New York world stories are in there. But not only that, um, you can, if you look up asylum or madhouse or mental, you know, hospital or any of those, any of those key words, you'll find that over and over and over again, people have tried to do something similar, not tried, but actually succeeded. And then it turns out also that before Nellie did it, in the 1870s, another reporter did it for another publication. And and like no one's report is as interesting as hers, but Margaret Fuller didn't go undercover, but she exposed. Um, um, Lydia Maria Child did it. Charles Dickens did it. <laughs> I mean, so it wasn't it wasn't even a new idea, but it's just Nellie's execution was always with more oomph, with more sensation, with more attention. And part of that was this young, pretty thing, you know, making this kind of decision. Yeah, she, the, 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 the Mexico thing. I mean, she was, what, 20 years old, 21? Yeah, so let's see. She's at the, it would be 1886. She's born in, I'm sorry, 18, yeah, 86. And she's born in 1864. So she's 22. Yeah. So yeah, I just she went, the you know, Mexico she went with thing. her mother. She went with her mother, but then you know, I have to tell you also from my current work that women traveling was a thing. Women traveling and writing back what were called letters was a journalistic thing going back to Grace Greenwood in the eighteen fifties. I mean it was not a new construct. What what women were trying to do was find ways not to write about rubber raincoats and flower shows. They really wanted to not have to do that. There was huge demand for women's page work because advertising was starting. And the department stores were big advertisers, and they loved to have copy like that next to their ads. So there was kind of a denigration coming in, and that starts really around 1850. So women would get peg-posted in newspaper offices really fast, and um, they would do anything they could think of to break out of that. And one way to do that was to say, I'm going to Mexico, I'll send back letters, and at least you could write about, you know, a broader range of topics. You could venture into politics, which she did, and that got her in a bunch of trouble. I was, was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was that. But also she wrote about bullfights. She wrote about everything. So, um, And she did take her mother along as chaperone. That she did. She did not do that when she went around the world. That she did alone. Yeah, but, she, but that was part of the, the guys. She goes to Mexico, this young woman, and then she criticizes the dictator. Yeah, it wasn't so smart. Well, no, she learned. It was, it was brave. She learned, she learned. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it wasn't brave, or it was maybe it was naive, but uh, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. And I'm sure a lot of people out there going, the Mexico thing, what are you talking about? Um, you want to give a brief... Uh, explanation of what she did in Mexico. Yeah. She well, she did what half a year. What right? any? Yeah, it was a little less than half a year. I mean, she did what any of the lady writers would do. 
that you would send back correspondence on this and that. It would have that tone of uh, a woman's view, which uh, was always part of the way these things were done for a long time. And, uh, and she traveled widely and then gets booted out at a certain point, comes back to Pittsburgh, thinks, okay, now I'm a correspondent, but guess what? He's got her doing rubber raincoats mm-hmm. uh, or maybe a little drama criticism, which she wasn't really good at. And she's just so frustrated that uh, the legend is one day her friend QO, Erasmus Wilson, the quiet observer was his name on the column. Uh, He was her great friend. He actually was the reason she ended up at the paper in the first place. This is the Pittsburgh Dispatch. And she leaves a note on his desk. This is according to his column. And it says, Dear QO, I'm off for New York. Look out for me. Bly. And I I love that. And so off she goes to New York with her mother. She thinks the world is waiting for her because she's done some credible work, not only in Mexico, but She's gone into the factories to see if there's child labor and how women are being treated. But, of course, this is where the undercover idea comes from because she goes with management and you can't see anything and no one can say anything. So I think that's where the idea of coming up with a ruse would have been born. I mean, I made that up, but I I think there's good reason to think that's the case. So she's up and down Park Row, you know, where all the newspapers are lined up. I think there are like 12 at that point. And no one is giving her the time of day. So she's so clever. It actually wasn't her idea. It was the idea of Joe Howard, who was a columnist. He suggested that she do an article about the prospects for women in New York journalism. And that would get her in to interview all those editors and get her in front of them. It was incredibly canny and smart. So she um, does that. She writes the piece. The piece ricochets all over the country. And she gets really interesting comments from them. And it's obvious they've got very set ideas about women can- what women can and cannot do. And, you know, like a, the utility of a woman is so limited because of her clothes, her swishy skirts and it's limited because she can't go out after dark without a chaperone. So there are you know, really good economic reasons for not hiring women. And all of this is in the article, which is pretty interesting. And then one thing that's said, one of the editors makes a comment about what would, you know, what would make you change your mind. It was kind of her question. I, I'm making that part up, but it's something like that. But the answer is what's important. And, uh, and she says, uh, and he says, you know, you have to have a really, you have to have an idea that's bringing something to me. This is something I would advise my students now, you know, like if you're going in to look for a job, what are you bringing? You know, they want to know what you're bringing. So that kind of response. So that gives her the idea to go into the world, which is where she wanted to work with ideas. So her first idea was to travel steerage from Southampton, England back to New York and find out what that experience was like, because, of course, that was very germane because of the huge rushes of immigration that were happening at that time, coming to New York, teaming up the Lower East Side. And um, they thought that was too risky and too expensive, so they said no to that. And then whether the idea was hers or John Cockrell's or Joseph Pulitzer's, I mean, no one really knows. Uh, I 
you know, I, I don't think it can be, I mean, you know, invention has many mothers, as they say, mm. but <laughs> one of them comes up with this idea. And you could see in the press in August, there were vague reports of something not right going on on Blackwell's Island, you know, the home of all the cancer spots of modern Manhattan, the almshouses, the prisons, the asylums, you know, everything was on this little island in the East River that's now called Roosevelt Island, but then was called Blackwell's. And um, so somewhere in that, the idea is born, and she figures out how to make herself seem like a madwoman. She practices and gets it ready, and then she decides to uh, take herself to a women's boarding house where she acts so disturbingly strange that the matron calls the police to take her away. And then from there, she goes through Bellevue, and she goes through the court system, and they send her certifying that she's crazy to the asylum where she stays 10 days and learns all sorts of things you would not learn if you went in through the administration. I, it's, and, and, and that it's such a good book. I mean, that's why everyone's so obsessed with it still and remembers it. It's such a great story. It's such a good book. Um, I'm sure Pulitzer well, took credit for it. it, it yeah. It, well, he, you know, he, he kind of wasn't in the office in those days. He suffered terrible, debilitating migraines and had issues with light, other things. So he was always in the background. Um, and then from there, it was stunt after stunt after stunt after stunt, week after week after week. She went to Albany and, you know, exposed a lobbyist. She would go to the prisons to see how the matrons were treating women. She would go to other uh, institutions she boxed with John L. Sullivan. I mean, she just, you know, some of them were frivolous, but most of them had sort of a social agenda weight to them. And I think that's what sets her apart from the legions of other stunt girls who were in, in her wake. There were many, many, many. But nobody had her social conscience. I mean, there was always kind of a news edge to the things that she did. You know, she wasn't standing outside the union club to see who might try to pick her up, which you know, is one of those stunts from another person. Nellie's had import. So if she was doing the chorus girls, you know, she spent a week as a chorus girl. Like her, her idea was, why do you choose this line of work? And then you would learn it was really about supporting an ailing mother or, you know, other things that made that sort of made those issues uh, turn inside out where you would see them in a different light and one that, uh, had a uh, a notion of compassion. She, you know, she's she's an interesting character. She was, and 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 I'm I'm sure a lot of that has to do with her with her harsh upbringing, like you said, which no one seems to talk about. Um, it's also interesting. She had two older brothers and a younger sister, and then there were the ten children from the previous marriage. So when the father died, you can imagine the estate was you know twelve cents. Yeah. And then the money that was supposed to have been set aside for her to go to school ran out immediately, whether her mother was, I mean, who knows why, but it ran out with, before she finished her first semester. So she's also unschooled. She had basically a semester of teacher's training, high school teacher's training, after, you know, elementary school. That's all she had. And then with um, such a large family, it didn't end up well for her. No. And then so the older brothers were a little bit ne'er-do-wells. And she really saw herself as the family champion. The mother was kind of hopeless, helpless, 
and and Nellie took charge and Nellie felt it was on her to make the money, you know, to to make make a way for for her mother, her sister, especially. And then the brothers you know, always stuck their hands in whenever they could. It was like that. Yeah, well, she was definitely the most grounded one and the most intelligent and the one who was the hardest worker. But totally. It, and it wasn't easy. I mean, this was not, you know, prosperous Pennsylvania for her. No. Uh, no, when they got to Pittsburgh, after they left Cochran's Mills, which, of course, was named for her father. He owned the mill. I mean, they were substantial in this tiny little hamlet. You know, it was very small potatoes, but they were the big guns. He was a judge. He, he was important. When he was gone, the mother was really lost, and so she marries this terrible drunken lout, and that's really bad for a couple of years. And then when she divorces him, they move to Pittsburgh. And as near as I could tell, Nellie might have done a little babysitting, which I'm sure she hated, uh, but the mother ran a boarding house. So that was how they made their living. And there are subsequent things I've found since. You know, people will send me things every once in a while when they come across something. Where there was a reunion in New York years after this Pittsburgh moment where the young men who used to stay in the boarding house all got together with Nellie and they had a great evening. Um, so that that's where I... And also from the city directory, you can tell that it's a boarding house. So that that was how they managed until Nellie went to New York, and then mother came with Nellie. And so did the sister, who subsequently married and had a child and blah, blah, blah. But she, like that. She is uh, such, a, such a character, though. I mean, she's in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, it's a decent-sized city, but she's like, no, I'm going to conquer New York, and, and she kind of did. Uh, no, she didn't kind of did, she did. Yeah, I was going to say, she, she, she did. She created all kinds of jealousy, I and mean, people just hated her. And another thing to say, um, you know, as I'm doing this new work, I've gotten more deeply into some of the construct around this. So stunt work was great for the reasons that I've already said, that it gave women an avenue. Not all women, but you had to sort of be young and, you know, a pretty ingenue who's willing to dare, and you had to have those kinds of qualities. Um, And it really created opportunity. It would put you on the front page. It would lead to lecture tours and books. Nellie wrote several books and money and fame, you know, all those things that are part of the allure of journalism, you have to say, though probably not the smartest one, but there. So that would happen. And then, but at the same time, it wasn't going to take anybody towards professional parody. Like, this was something that was going to die from overuse. I mean, how many times can you have a gimmick like that and have it mean anything? So, really, by the time around 18, let's say if it starts in 1887, by 1892, it's over. And the women who have done it have either burned out because of what they've been put through to do it, um, or they've tried to reinvent themselves in some other form. But they've already got a reputation for being stunt girls. You know, so it's, it was very much a two-edged sword. It did not, it opened the chute to mainstream journalism, but, but it didn't clear the path. I guess that's the way I would say that. It showed that women could do something more than write about social notes. 
So that was important. But then it didn't immediately lead. It took really another 20, 30 years or so, a couple more decades, where they weren't doing something that was offbeat. Like the next big movement would be the Sob Sisters. You know, these were the women that would go to trials and write the tear-your-heart-out stories about that. Um, another avenue that was just as really as bad for women as stunt girls were. So takes a little while longer before women start to find a place, you know, in the front page or, you know, doing real general assignment work without reference to gender. There always is a little reference to gender for quite a long time. Even to this day, there still is in some respects. Oh, there's plenty. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not right. Well, some of, you know, some... Some of it is it, some of it is like just during this period of the centennial of uh, American women voting, you know, it's important to put those things forward, that the history not get lost and that you understand what the struggles were for people to get from point A to point Z. It's important to remember all these things and to bring it up. I guess we should all hope for the day when, you know, we're blind to everything except ability. That would be nice. It would be perfect. It would be amazing, but... I, it would be perfect. But I, I don't think we're there yet. No, I don't think we're close. So here we are celebrating every little thing. You know, I know we, uh, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask, how did she actually get to meet up with Jules Verne when she went and did the Around the World trip? Because, I mean, she took his idea and, you know, wanted to do it, and then actually oh, ran into him. he was thrilled. Brian, he was thrilled. He, you know, they, they made contact with him probably by telegram because everything was organized so quickly. Let's say the trip across the ocean, I don't know how many days it was, but not so many days. And I just read that it took three weeks to get from, you know, Yokohama to San Francisco. So how long did that trip be? Maybe not so long. Um, so they, he knew she was coming. He was thrilled. He probably was as interested in publicity as she was. He knew it was going to be a big sensation which of course it was everybody covered it and so that was easy i mean it's, it was a natural publicity hit for both of them of course she went of course he said yes oh i just i just love the fact that obvious. there you know there's jules hey how are you let nelly you're doing my yeah. uh, my book i love it <laughs> so remember this too the whole trip around the world the whole 72 days she's filing back you know, a short cable every several days because she's on the sea for a long time, you know, between venues. So the world, the newspaper is vamping. They are just vamping the whole time. They're running guessing contests, geography lessons. I mean, they're just doing whatever they can to keep the interest going because there is no copy till she gets to San Francisco. Oh, and she's just such an amazing woman. And, and well, Lauren, Lauren I, I know we got to go, but do you have anything you want to, uh, what quick question or anything you want to say before we let uh, Brooke go? Uh, no, no, I had my question about Jules Verne answered. Oh. Okay, good. It's lovely <laughs> to talk to both of you. Thank you I for inviting me. As you can see, I like to talk about Nellie Bly oh. still, even after all these years. Yeah, and, and so do we, and I can't wait for the new book. Oh, well, you've got to wait a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will wait, but I don't want to wait. Okay. <laughs> I'm impatient. Okay. Oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> What'd you think, Lauren? That was very good. 
I love Nat I Clyde. really enjoyed that. I do have one question for you, though. Yeah? Were you recording when Theo made it? When Theo came to talk to you? I was not. No, no, he's he's very taken with you. He thinks you're Santa. I know. I, I, I don't know why he thinks I'm Santa, but, uh, you know, my hair's not that gray yet. No, no, he, he, it's your voice. No, no, and, and, um, because cause he came in and he said, I want to talk to Santa. And then I said, oh, I, <laughs> and he wants, he wants to, uh, wants me to um, promise that next time he can come and speak to you for all the day. Now, you know, we can use this to your advantage because we can keep him in line now. He won't be acting like a madman. Oh, he's he's mad because he's six. Yeah, I know, but if you tell him, hey, Santa's over there, he'll come right down. <laughs> so I I do apologize for that, but he was very insistent about coming oh, on. Oh, we love talking to him. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, and he's a little charmer. He is. He is. He was... He, he, he was saying, they're American. They're not English or Welsh. They're American. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> now, that's a he question. I, I got to yeah. ask you. I, took, I never thought to ask you this in all the years I've known you. <laughs> what? You know, when, when an American, I mean, it's probably not the same way for people who are younger now. Um, but people my age, even people your age, uh, which is a lot younger than me, when you have a friend who's in another country, it's a really kind of, ooh, that's cool, my friend's in Wales. Like, it's this, like, big deal yeah. because it's so mysterious. Do you think to the kids now, like your nephew and stuff, it's a big deal that there's an American there, or it's just the world is so... Um, so connected now with the internet that it's no big deal to them. Um, it's a big deal to him because he is not he he's quite taken aback how you can speak to someone on a computer. But what do you think? Well, how old is your other nephew? He's a little older. He's um, he's eight. Yeah, so that's still a little young. But uh, I just yeah. wondered that because I mean. You know, if I was much younger and I had a friend that was foreign country, I'd be like, this is so cool. And I'd be bragging to everybody about it. And now it's just like, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, um, I think he just thinks it's cool that you can talk to people in other countries. Although all the people I know in America do think it's cool because they're like, oh my God, Lauren's accent is so adorable. Um. <laughs> But he also thinks it's cool that you're going to take him boxing. Well, yeah, Santa can kick ass. <laughs> he also wanted me to tell you that he went to the gym the other day to work out. Good for him. There was this, like, session for families, um, and they all went, because some of their friends from school were there, and they hadn't seen very much of them since all of the COVID stuff. So they went out. They, they went to this outdoor session. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Did you, uh... Yeah, he's, very he's very taken with you. He wants to speak to you again. 
I have some people who are very taken with you, Lauren. I don't think you want to speak to them, though. It could get a little creepy. (laughs) What? (laughs) Are you getting emails? No, people I've talked. I've told you people have said that voice. It's just that accent. It's so adorable. Uh, But this uh, episode is fantastic. I'm like, I'm sorry I ruined it for you when I speak. Yeah, I, and this episode was fan. And Nellie Bly is just such a, a an amazing character, and 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 I'm glad that 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 Brooke was able to come on. Brooke Kroger, um, her books are just incredible, and I I know she she's very busy and doesn't have much time. So just for her to be able to make the time to come on for us was just in, uh, just incredible and such an honor. It is. But I think we should get ready to wrap this up. So uh, before we do, let's give out that social media information one more time. You can reach us by email at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com or on Twitter. Follow us at TA History. Facebook is at History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. And Instagram is at History Ramblings, and coming soon, TikTok. Not quite sure what we're going to do with it, but we'll do something. And we now have our merch store. Yeah! That's right, and the link to our merch store will be in the description. You can get Transatlantic History Ramblings t-shirts, coffee mugs, hoodies. Uh, They even have onesies. Did you see that? So if anybody's having a baby, you can get them a Transatlantic History onesie. Uh, (gasps) Stickers, magnets, anything, you name it. A pro-planet Pluto onesie. That, that, you know... That would be adorable. You know, by the time this airs, we may have pro-planet Pluto stuff in there. Right now, it's just our Transatlantic History logo, because uh, we're testing out the uh, the store. But, uh, you know, everybody get in and order your Transatlantic History Ramblings merch. Mm-hmm. What do you... Did you like the merch? I did, yes. I like hoodies. And it's, you know, coming into hoodie season soon, so... Yeah, so you should get a hoodie. Get a Transatlantic History hoodie. I will. All right, so on that note, from Brian in the North Pole, apparently... (laughs) And Lauren from South Wales. Good night. Good night. They actually, like, are they actually offend me? Adult onesies offend me.